0: Chapter 36 of Carpenter's World Travels, Alaska, Our Northern Wonderland, by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chapter 36, The Story of Kennecott. Cordova, 200 miles across Prince William Sound from Seward, is the copper center of Alaska. The ore coming down to the port is from only two or three mines, but they represent one of the most extensive and richest of the copper areas of the world. More than 400 copper locations have already been made and the ore belt is known to be over 70 miles long and 20 miles wide. These deposits are so rich that Alaska may become as noted for its copper as it has been for gold. The first train load of ore that came down to Cordova contained metal to the value of more than a half million dollars and that now on the wharves is worth from 12 to $15,000 a carload. The ore is brought down from the Kennecott mines in sacks, each containing from 150 to 200 pounds of ore, carrying $28 worth of copper. The ore of the Kennecott mines is so rich in copper that it can be dug from the earth, turned into metal, and put on the market at a cost of a few cents a pound. The average ores they are now taking out are over 20% copper and a large part of them carry as much as 72%. In comparison, the copper ores of Arizona yield about 5%. Those of Montana, about three, and those of Michigan, less than 1%. Do you wonder that the Kennecott mines pay? The native metal was used by the Copper River Indians before white men entered the territory. Old spear and arrowheads of it have been found in the sluice boxes of the miners, and ceremonial knives of copper are even now employed by the natives in cutting the salmon taken at the beginning of the catch. Long before the Russians sold Alaska to us, they had discovered that copper existed there. They had nuggets and small household utensils of beaten copper. They found no large deposits, however, and it was not until a generation after we had taken possession that prospectors on their way from Prince William Sound to the Klondike learned about the Copper River region. In the same year, the United States Geological Survey reported a similar copper belt on the northern slope of the Wrangell Mountains, about 200 miles south of Fairbanks. The most important discovery was that of the Kennecott mines, which were developed by the Morgan Guggenheim syndicate. These deposits were discovered in 1900 by two miners prospecting near here, and a little later, the property was investigated by Mr. Stephen A. Birch, a young mining engineer who brought it to the attention of the capitalists and organized the projects which have made it one of the greatest copper mines of the world. It was through a talk with Mr. Birch that I learned the story of the discovery," said he. It began with a mining excitement that followed the rush to the Klondike. Among the prospectors then moving about here and there over Alaska were eleven working under a partnership agreement. These men went in pairs first drawing lots to see which section of the country they should take. The district of the upper Chitina River was drawn by Clarence Warner and Jack Smith, who had tramped so extensively over the mountains of Arizona that he was known as the Arizona Centipede. Toward the end of the summer of 1900, Warner and Smith had gone carefully over the section allotted to them, but had found nothing and were about to leave in despair. Their grub was fast diminishing and when they came to the Kennecott River, they decided to end their work by prospecting the land between Kennecott Glacier and Nicholas Creek, and, if nothing was found, to give up for the year. They had gone only three miles when Warner sprained his ankle on one of the rocks, and the two sat down by a stream to rest. While eating their lunch, Smith called Warner's attention to a large green patch in the rocks on the side of the mountain. He said it looked strange and that they ought to go up and see just what it was. Warner replied that Smith might go if he would, but he didn't intend to climb that far to look at a sheep pasture. He thought the green patch was grass and that it was one of the feeding grounds of the mountain sheep found on the hills of this part of Alaska. Discouraged by Warner's objection, Smith was about to give up when he saw in the bed of the stream a piece of float or chip of mineral-bearing rock. He picked it up and he and Warner studied it together. They broke it in two. As the fracture had a silvery look they thought it was silver. They found more of the float in the creek, the pieces increasing in number as they walked up the stream and gradually leading them to the spot they had thought a sheep pasture. Then they saw that the outcropping was copper from what proved to be the richest copper mine ever discovered. Now the first thing a prospector does after making a strike is to select a name for his find, continued Mr. Birch. The question was, what they should call the new mine. Old Jack Smith, who was ahead of Warner and first saw the possibilities, turned to his partner and said, By God, Warner, she's a bonanza. To which Warner replied, Well, Jack, that's a good name for her. We'll call her the Bonanza Mine. And a bonanza it has proved to be. After only four and one half years' operation, it yielded over $8 million in dividends and then began earning at the rate of more than six millions per annum. So far, no one knows the actual extent of the deposit, and it is safe to say that it will be paying dividends for generations to come. When the prospectors returned to the rest of their party at Valdez, Mr. Birch was there on behalf of himself and certain capitalists of New York City, looking for promising mining investments. The prospectors told him about their discovery and showed him the specimens of ore, and he agreed to make an examination the following spring if they would give him an option upon it. The next season, Birch returned to Alaska and found the deposit all and more than had been claimed. He then secured a new option, agreeing to pay $100,000 to each of the 11 members of the party. To make this option perfectly valid, he had to secure the signatures of the 11 prospectors and all who were interested with them. Some of the men had been grubstaked by others so that the money had to be divided among 32 claimants, each of whom had to agree to the deal. The establishment of the titles involved several lawsuits, one of which was carried to the Supreme Court of the United States, and it was five years before the Alaska Syndicate was able to begin actual development work. Although this syndicate had to put approximately $25 million into the property, Including the expense of building the Copper River Railway, there is no doubt that they have got back the worth of their money. They have already received more than the purchase price and dividends, and the market value of the property is several times what it cost. Further on in our conversation, Mr. Birch spoke of the copper deposits on the island of Latouche in Prince William Sound. That island has rich copper loads but the ore is of an entirely different character from that of the Bonanza and the Jumbo nearby. The Latouche mines are low-grade producers. Their ore is a chalcopyrite, which averages about 3% copper. It is quarried from the hillsides overlooking the water and is treated by the flotation process. The story of the discovery of the Latouche copper mine, which was told me by an old prospector at Seward, is quite as interesting as that of the Bonanza. The Latouche mine was the result of a mess of bad clams. A number of miners were sailing along the shores of Latouche Island when they stopped at a clam bed and dug up enough for a meal. They cooked the clams, but before eating them, found that they were deadly poisonous on account of the copperas in them. One of the men suggested that the copperas must come from copper deposits nearby, and that they had better stop and prospect the rocks. The outcome was the discovery of these great deposits of low-grade copper ore almost on the edge of the sea. The miners decided to develop the property for themselves, but the ore contained such a small percentage of metal that they could not make it pay. They kept on mining, however, with the idea that the deposits were so large that they ought to sell the property at a big price. Finally, one of them, named Beatson announced that he was disgusted and was going outside for the winter. He took some of the ore with him and went to New York, where he induced a rich relative to advance him $30,000 to purchase the property, with the understanding that Beetson was to retain his own share. Beetson then came back to Latouche, but before he did so, he changed his money into 30 yellow banknotes of $1,000 each, which he sewed inside the lining of his mackinaw. When he came to the mine, it was with a sad face. He said that capital was tight and the public not prone to invest. He kept on preaching hard times and at last cast such a gloom over the camp that the others of the party decided to sell if they could get any kind of a price for the mine. They were in this mood when Beetson asked them to name a price and they finally agreed on a few thousand dollars. Before showing his money, Beetson asked, are you sure you would take that price if I could find the money? When the other miners replied in the affirmative, He asked them to put their offer in writing. Thinking he was bluffing, they did so. He thereupon ripped open his coat and handed out the sum in $1,000 banknotes. The yellow bills looked so good that the men took them and the mine became his. Beetson then began to develop the property and finally sold it to the Alaska Syndicate, which is now operating it at a profit. I have not learned the price, but am told that it was high enough to drop Mr. Beetson into Easy Street for the rest of his life. Copper mining requires capital so that it has not attracted the small prospector as gold has done. Though it is said that a billion dollars worth of copper is in sight in Alaska, and though one nugget weighing three tons has been found, so far mining costs have been so high that only ore with a large copper content will make the work pay. The ore has to be shipped to the States to be smelted, which means much rehandling besides the long and expensive haul. There is plenty of coal suitable for the smelters close to the copper regions, the Bering River which is now reached by the Alaska Anthracite Railroad. As soon as these fields are developed and cheap coal is available, smelters will undoubtedly be built and operated close to the copper mines. End of chapter 36